Hey everyone, Dan here. Maureen has a gift for you in the Says Who feed today. Welcome to the Box in the Woods. This is a story about a murder investigation and contains details that are violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Barlow Corners sits about an hour outside of Springfield. It was, and still is, a picture-perfect place. There's a main street with an old-fashioned diner, a classical revival library, quaint shops that sell coffee and knickknacks. It's the kind of place where everyone knows everyone else. They go to the same school, shop in the same stores, go to the town doctor and dentist. It was such a quintessential American town that a picture of it was featured in a special bicentennial issue of Life magazine in 1976. Back in the summers of the 1970s, almost all of the town's teenagers worked at Camp Wonder Falls, located just a few miles outside the town center. The camp opened in 1950 on a serene, hourglass-shaped lake, surrounded by miles of thick, fragrant woods. On the night of July 6, 1978, four teenage counselors were ready to have some fun. They went into the woods that night to pick up a bag full of marijuana and smoke a few joints under the stars. Around 11.30 p.m., they took some sleeping bags and snacks, climbed into a brown jeep, and headed off down the slender dirt path that wove out of the camp and deep into the forest. There was Diane McClure, the tomboy who loved Led Zeppelin, Todd Cooper, the son of the mayor of Barlow Corners and captain of the football team at Liberty High, Eric Wilde, the class clown and son of the town librarian, and Sabrina Abbott, the valedictorian who was headed off to Columbia University in the fall. But someone else was out in the woods that night, and Diane... Todd, Eric, and Sabrina would never be seen alive again. They would be found in the object that has given this case its name. The Box in the Woods. Diane, Todd, Eric, and Sabrina were well-known in the town, all for different reasons. How they came to be together that night has been a matter of speculation for decades, as they were a bit of an unusual grouping. You have to start with the victims, always, to give them their humanity. And in this case, the group itself is the first mystery. That's the author P.L. Cooper who spent five years living in Barlow Corners researching the murders and wrote one of the definitive books on the case. They went into the woods that night to pick up some marijuana. Eric was the camp dealer. By all accounts, really nice kid, very funny. His mom was the town librarian. Diane McClure was a bit of a tough girl. She was a 70s hard rock chick. She loved Led Zeppelin with a passion. Diane is hard to find in the Liberty High yearbook for 1978. She didn't participate in many clubs. 
she can be seen in one photo, taken near the student smoking lounge having a cigarette. Yes, in the 1970s, high schools had student smoking lounges. And when we get to Todd Cooper, the plot thickens a bit. Diane and Todd were a couple. Todd was the son of the mayor, and he'd been in trouble before. We'll get into the details of Todd's trouble a bit later. And then we have Sabrina Abbott. Her presence throws the whole thing off. Eric, Diane, and Todd, they hung out. They were known to pick up the pot delivery for the camp. But Sabrina Abbott was the town's good girl. She was at the top of her class. She never got into trouble. She wasn't known to drink or smoke pot. She'd only recently started hanging out with the others. The best guess is that she wanted to cut loose a bit. She'd worked hard all through high school, and she wanted to have a little well-deserved fun. On that night in 1978, Diane, Todd, Sabrina, and Eric all ate dinner in the dining pavilion with the rest of the staff and the campers. Todd worked as a lifeguard and slept in the lake house. His fellow lifeguards saw him sitting on the dock around 10 p.m. Sabrina, Diane, and Eric returned to their bunks and made sure their young charges got ready for bed. They were all last seen around 11.30 p.m. Diane told her co-counselor Brandy Clark that she and Todd were going out to the woods for a drink and a smoke, and that she would be back before two. The next morning, the camp's morning announcement woke everyone at 7.30, as was usual. It was a stunningly beautiful day. Brandy Clark noticed that Diane had not returned from her trip to the woods. She was more annoyed than concerned. She assumed Diane had gotten a little too drunk or too high, and that she and Todd fell asleep at their party spot. She would have to cover for her friend. She gathered up her young campers and took them out to the bathrooms for their morning showers. One of the young children ran over to the slender dirt path that wound into the trees, leading to the archery range and the theater. She returned to tell Brandy that there was someone asleep on the path. Brandy assumed this was someone who had passed out, possibly one of the partiers. She made her way to the figure on the path. As she approached, she noticed something was wrong. The figure was face down in the dirt, arms outstretched overhead. It wasn't Diane. Diane had straight red hair, and this person had curly hair. She recognized him at once. It was Eric Wilde. He wasn't moving, and there was something off about the entire scene. His hair was too dark. His clothes were filthy, covered in something she couldn't quite identify. And there were so many flies. She reached Eric and rolled him over. She later recalled that she heard screaming, and that it took her a minute to realize that the sound was coming from her. He had a massive wound to the side of his head, one that had taken out his left eye, crushing the socket and deforming half his face. His hair appeared darker because of all the dried blood in it, it was immediately clear that Eric was dead. Her screams had alerted the entire camp to the danger. Soon, the head of camp and the camp nurse were on the scene. 
It looked like Eric had run through the woods. His legs were full of scrapes and cuts. Someone had caught up with him and stabbed him over and over, just steps away from the safety of the camp and the sleeping children. It was estimated that he had only been dead for an hour or so. The police were called, and the head of the camp, Susan Marks, tried to maintain control. Another counselor ran up and asked her, Where are the others? That's when Susan found out that four counselors had gone into the woods the night before. Eric was dead. But where were Diane, Todd, and Sabrina? This counselor confessed that Eric and the others had gone to do the weekly marijuana pickup. She had herself gone once or twice. The pickup spot was just up the path, a few miles out into the woods. The police drove down the dirt road until they found the brown jeep parked off to the side. They walked into the woods, picking their way through the undergrowth and pushing back tree branches. They came upon a small clearing where they found the smoldering remains of a campfire, an unzipped sleeping bag spread out like a blanket, some cans of soda and snacks, and a cafeteria tray full of loose marijuana and rolled joints. The scene was calm and relatively tidy, with no signs of violence, but there was no sign of the counselors. The police noticed signs that something had been dragged deeper into the woods, they followed this trail until they came upon an old hunting blind, a low structure with a hinged lid and just a slender opening in the side for hunters to peer out of to wait for deer. This opening had been plugged up with newspaper. There was no way to prepare for what they would find inside. Diane, Todd, and Sabrina almost looked like they were sleeping. They were tucked neatly into the box, Diane and Sabrina facing one way and Todd the other, his head by their feet. It took a moment before the cloud of green flies swarmed out at them and the pungent, nauseating odor of decay filled their nostrils. Once the flies had been cleared away, they saw the red cord that bound their arms and legs and the stab wounds that perforated their bodies. They seemed uncountable, but the autopsies would determine that Diane had nine stab wounds, Todd had 16, and Sabrina had 22. Todd and Diane's wounds were to the chest and neck. Only Sabrina had defensive wounds on her hands. Most of the wounds would have been fatal on their own. This was the definition of overkill. A single word was painted on the inside of the box's lid. Surprise. This was a heinous crime. So terrible that people could barely comprehend what they were seeing. And that included the police. The whole investigation was a mess from the start. From the minute the bodies were found, the police in Barlow Corners had no idea how to process a crime scene like this. 
People trampled all over and contaminated the scene. Evidence was moved before it was photographed. And then some of it was taken away and lost. One of the first major clues, one that couldn't be destroyed, was the location of the murders. They happened deep in the woods at night. Access to the area was via a single lane dirt road, barely a road, which wasn't used by many vehicles and more or less never at night. It was really more of a hiking trail. And while Todd Cooper's Jeep was left on the path, the actual site of their camp and the box was deeper in the woods and there was no path to that spot. You'd have to know where you were going or you'd have to follow the group very closely. And remember, these were 18 year olds. Todd was an athlete, but they could all hold their own. They worked at the camp and did physical exercise every day. So how do you take down four people like that in a remote location they may know better than you do? How did someone find and control these four teenagers? From here, it's best to get into the theories of the case because they reflect the evidence and what was or wasn't done by the police. Perhaps most importantly, they reveal some things about the town of Barlow Corners, things people tried very hard to keep quiet. Because despite its idyllic appearance, Barlow Corners was a town with some dark secrets. It's Eric Wilde who leads us to the first theory, that the crime was a drug deal gone wrong. The four victims had gone out to pick up a bag of marijuana, which they would roll into joints and distribute to the other counselors. This was apparently something that happened every week. This was the 70s, after all. The way it worked was that Eric would collect the money from anyone at the camp who wanted to buy. He dropped the money somewhere, and then he went to a pickup point in the woods to get the stash. Back then, this was illegal, but we're not talking a crime of the century here. This is maybe $25 or $50 worth of pot. I don't think anyone's getting murdered over something like that, especially since it seems like the deal went according to schedule and all the drugs were left behind at the scene. So why kill four teenagers over something you don't even take? But people still like this theory because they say, oh, there were drugs, it must have been the drugs. That and the fact that Eric's body was found somewhere else, not with the other three. But I don't think any serious investigators of the case think this has any merit. The more you think about it, the less sense it makes. Wasn't the drugs. So if the murders weren't about a drug deal gone wrong, there were strong indications that they were related to theory number two, the woodsman. The woodsman theory is one that definitely plays a role in the case, though how much of a role isn't known. The 70s are sometimes called the golden age of serial killers, and for good reason. There seem to be many operating all over the country, there was one operating in the Northeast United States between 1973 and 1980 called the Woodsman because these killings all occurred in the woods. The victims were all stabbed, their hands and feet bound in red cord, their remains covered in debris, and the word surprise written near the scene. This case looks like the work of the Woodsman. Problem is, all of the details of the Woodsman case were in the news. And this scene differed from the Woodsman killings in a lot of important ways. The Woodsman killed only one victim at a time. The material used to bind the victims in the box in the woods was different from the kind used in the Woodsman killings. And even the word surprise was written with a different substance. The Woodsman always used chalk, and this killer used paint. So either the Woodsman committed the box in the woods murders and modified the MO, or someone copied elements of the Woodsman murders. Finally, we get to something closer to home, something right at the heart of Barlow Corners, 
there had been another unsolved death in the town. That was the case of the boy on the bicycle. Seven months before the Box in the Woods murders, an 11-year-old local boy named Michael Penhale was riding his bicycle home from band practice at his school. It was December 10th, 1977, and the students were preparing for a holiday concert. It was normal for Michael to ride his bike home. Many students in Barlow Corners rode their bikes to and from school. It was very late, just after 10 p.m. It's hard to imagine any parent today letting their child ride home alone on a bike at that hour, but this was the 1970s, and again, this was Barlow Corners. As he turned a corner near his home, Michael was struck down by a car. A neighbor heard the accident and ran out to find the gravely injured boy in the road. She called for help, but there was nothing that could be done. Michael died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. There was a suspect right from the start, Todd Cooper. What's clear about the death of Michael Penhale and what was so extraordinary to me as I researched this case is just how little the police did to find out what happened to him. The most charitable explanation is that mistakes were made. But it really seems like the people in charge of the investigation knew exactly what had happened and did everything to make sure that the truth never came out. Their actions are telling. The things they didn't do are extremely telling. Todd Cooper was known to drive drunk. He was known to speed. There was a witness who saw Todd Cooper's brown Jeep speeding away from the corner where the accident had just taken place. The police made no real effort to examine that vehicle in a timely manner. It's shocking how little was done. Todd was the mayor's son, so the whole thing just went away. Then Todd was murdered a few months later, along with three other people. That was the end of it. No one talked about Michael Penhale anymore. Were these events connected? Would someone who wanted revenge for the death of an innocent young boy kill other innocent people? It's impossible to know. We're left with three theories and no answers. For decades, people have speculated. The evidence, what little there is, has been re-examined to no avail. Someone knows what happened out in the woods that night. Sooner or later, it's gonna come out. I don't know if it'll be DNA or some kind of deathbed confession, but it's going to happen. And I think it'll happen soon, because you can feel it. Whoever it was, and I've always believed it was someone from the town, someone who knew this place, the truth is there. Someone knows who put those kids in that box. Would you like to know what happened? The killer's identity is known, and you can find out by reading The Box in the Woods by Maureen Johnson. Available everywhere books are sold on June 15th, 2021. For more information, go to MaureenJohnson.com or follow Maureen on social media on Twitter at Maureen Johnson or on Instagram at Maureen Johnson Books. This podcast is a work of fiction written by Maureen Johnson. The part of the narrator was read by Julie Polk. The part of P.L. Cooper was read by Hal Lublin. Production by Dan Sinker. 
Special thanks to Julie Threlkeld. And remember, stay out of the woods. <laughs>